Within the last few months, um, I've read two different books, which both include chapters about a man by the name of Don Valencia. Uh, I first read about him in Onward, written by Howard Schultz, the founder and former CEO of Starbucks. Uh, Valencia walked into the original Starbucks on Pike Place in Seattle, and he asked the baristas to do something that coffee connoisseurs simply do not do. He asked them to try some instant coffee that he had made. Uh, and, And at first they resisted, but he insisted, and to their surprise, they actually liked it. In fact, it tasted fresh brewed to them. It wasn't long before Howard Schultz was flying to Sacramento, California to meet Don Valencia. He wanted to know how someone could freeze dry coffee without making it taste, well, freeze dried. And and what he learned was that Valencia was a biologist who had invented a freeze-dried blood testing kit that was being used by doctors all around the world. And in his free time, he tinkered with coffee because he was also an avid backpacker. And the only kind of coffee that he could take with him on his backpacking trips was instant coffee. And he wanted, in the worst way, to be able to wake up in the morning and crawl out of his tent into the great outdoors and enjoy a really good cup of coffee. And eventually, he succeeded in creating a powder that, when mixed with water, tasted that good. Howard Schultz was so impressed that he hired Don Valencia to create and manage a a million, a multi-million dollar research and development facility for Starbucks. It was that Um, decision that led to the perfecting of a product called Frappuccino. Ever heard of it? And later, Starbucks rolled out an instant coffee. They called it Via. It's an Italian uh, word that means street, but it also happens to comprise the first letter and the last two letters of Don Valencia's name. In his book, Schultz writes about the close relationship that he enjoyed with Don Valencia. It was seven years after Don had retired from Starbucks that he was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And as soon as Howard Schultz found out that his friend was losing his battle, he began to travel to his home every other week to spend time with his friend. And there he said, behind closed doors, with Don lying covered with a blanket on a couch and me sitting nearby in a big chair, we would talk for well over an hour about so much more than coffee. Now, Schultz doesn't say what they talked about, but my guess is that faith was part of the conversation. I say that because another writer, Bob Goff, wrote about Don Valencia in his book, Love Does. He also told the story of Don's delicious instant coffee, but what impacted Bob most deeply was his friend's unchanging faith in and love for God. It was attractive when Don was healthy, but it became really inspiring when Don got sick. After his cancer diagnosis, Don began a blog about his journey. Bob Goff said, I'd read his letters and posts along with many other people, and his spirit of love and hope and anticipation was inexplicable. He said he felt like he was dancing on the edge of heaven. But he wasn't scared. 
He was almost like a commercial telling everybody about how great it was to have cancer. He was delighted about the opportunity to live even one more day, to take one more breath, to learn one more thing about the character of God. And what left the deepest impression on Bob Goff was that that at the end of every one of Don Valencia's blog posts, he wrote these words, God is good all the time. God is good. Bob Goff said it wasn't just something he was telling himself, hoping it was true. It was something he knew for certain. When I read that, I wondered, how did those words become Don Valencia's valediction? I mean, was he just a glass-half-full kind of guy by nature? Was he born optimistic, or, or did he somehow learn to view his life through the lens of God's goodness? What disciplines did he practice? What habits did he form to become an unlikely cheerleader for the goodness of God? And I'm still searching for an answer to that question. As a matter of fact, I called Bob Goff the other day to see if he could tell me more. The reason I did that is because in the back of Bob's book, he gives his cell phone number and says, give me a call anytime. And so I said, well, I'll give it a try. And he he actually answered the phone. And he said, Greg, I can't talk to you right now. I'm about to speak at this conference called Orange. And I've been to Orange before. He was about to walk out on the stage and speak to about 20,000 people. So he, could, he, so he answered the phone, but he couldn't talk. And I haven't been able to get to him since. So I haven't yet cracked the code on Don Valencia. But I think I have found a way to help all of us become more like Don in the way that we think and speak about God. The ideas that I want to share with you come from this psalm that we just read, Psalm 145. And I'll tell you, the reason why I chose to teach this psalm today is just because it's the most celebratory psalm that I could find. Today's a day of celebration for our church, and I said, well, let me find a psalm that really celebrates who God is. But the more that I dug into this passage, the more lessons that I learned about worship. The psalm that was written by King David of Israel It's kind of like this multifaceted diamond, and every vantage point reveals different dimensions of truth. So I'm just going to try to do this as fast as I can. I'm going to share with you four things that I have learned about worship by studying this psalm. First, worship can be habit-forming. Write that down. Worship can be habit-forming. It is not something that we can only do with integrity if we are genuinely excited about something good God has done for us. That's what some people think. They say, well, if I'm going to be honest with God, I can't really thank Him and worship Him and praise Him when things don't, aren't going well. That's not true. Actually, worship can and should be a discipline that we practice every single day. I didn't know this when I first started studying this psalm, but it's actually an acrostic poem, which means that each verse begins with a a well-chosen letter um, from from Hebrew. Notice there are 22 lines in the psalm. It's 21 verses long. uh, Verse 13 has two lines on it, so it's 22 lines long. Guess how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. And you see, each one of the lines begins with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 
It's not A, but Aleph. Not B, but Bait. Don't ask me what's next. I know like the next couple of them, and then I'm done. But basically, it, it, you go, it goes right down through the alphabet. See those words that are in gray there on your note sheet? Those are the first words of the line in the Hebrew language, and each one begins with a different letter of the alphabet. So really, this is like praising God from A to Z. The psalm was, was written in that way so that it would be easier to memorize it. And this psalm was read in every Jewish synagogue twice a day. Later, Christians recited it every single day before lunch. These were the words with which they said grace at the midday meal. And it was also read every time Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper or communion. See, the people of God read Psalm 145 so regularly that it became a habit. Just like Don Valencia ended every blog post with those words, God is good all the time. God is good. You say that enough times, and it begins to affect the way that you think, right? Especially if you do it not just when you're feeling it, but even when your circumstances and your emotions argue for the opposite. We really did that this morning. I mean, all of us sang the very same words of the very same worship songs, even though for some of us, those words are, are out of sync with how we feel. I mean, honestly, if you were to know the story of every single person in this room, it would astound you that we were all praising God with one heart and one voice. And why did we do it? We did it because it's Sunday. And this is what Christians do on Sunday. One day a week, we gather together to worship God. And we worship Him in the best of times and in the worst of times. And that discipline that we have maintained, you know, that that habit that we have formed, helps us to see God as He is and to praise Him as He deserves instead of allowing circumstances or emotions to take us on a roller coaster ride. I grew up in the Lutheran church. Um, One of the things that I was happy to shed when I when I moved out of that church, my faith kind of led me into a different expression of worship that was much more informal. And one of the things I was really glad to get rid of was liturgy. What that means is you say, you say or you sing the same words every single week. It was so monotonous. I, just, I, I was just glad to get rid of it. The thing is, it's now 37 years later, and I can't get out of my head some of those things that we sang, like the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Join me. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Oh, yeah, yeah. There it is. If I could sing, I might have been a Lutheran pastor. They kicked me out. But really, you know, those are, those are pretty good words to have playing in your head, aren't they? Not bad at all. There's something powerful about maintaining a rhythm of worship. Not praising God only in response to His blessings, but forging a daily habit that shapes how we think about Him and how we approach the challenges of life. Okay, here's number two, a second truth that this psalm underscores. It's that worship is contagious. It's contagious. Did you notice the growth of the congregation of worshipers in this psalm? 
Look at verse 1. How many worshipers are there in, in just those first two verses? Only one. See, the, see the, one, the word circled? I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. But then go down to verse 10. How big is the crowd? All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. Every single member of the community of faith is worshiping God. And then go all the way down to the bottom, verse 21. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. So what starts with one ends with all. The more wholeheartedly we praise God, the more likely others are to follow our example. You might say, well, really? Who is it that follows my example of worship? Well, your kids do, for starters. They learn how to think about and how to talk about and how to sing about God more than anybody else from you. That's why David says in verse 4, one generation commends your works to another. It's an inheritance that we pass down. One spring when uh, my middle son Brian was in elementary school, his class did uh, projects, uh, like they made gifts for Mother's Day and for Father's Day. And what the boys did is they got clothes from their father, from, the, from their mom. So Brian got a set of clothes and also one item that represented kind of what they do. And so Brian got one of my Bibles. And on Father's Day, I got a 5 by 7 picture of Brian in my clothes holding my Bible. That was, at the same time, heartwarming and convicting. Because whether I was doing it intentionally or accidentally, I was giving my son an example to follow. My most difficult years as a Christian came not long after I received that gift. And I've often wondered what kind of an attitude toward God my kids picked up on from me during that time. I know that I didn't walk around saying God is good all the time. But Don Valencia did that. And it's what made his worship so compelling and so uh, contagious. He spoke well of God even in the midst of suffering. The more habitually we worship, the more likely we are to teach others to praise God even when life is hard. And then that's not just because of the grooves that our habits carve into our daily behavior. It is also because worship reminds us of the truth about God. See, sometimes our circumstances and our emotions and even others who watch us suffer say things about God that are not true. But worship supplants those lies with the truth. If I could condense all that Psalm 145 says repeatedly about God just make it as short as I could, it would come down to two truths. The first one is, God is great. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. Basically, David is saying God is worthy of our worship because he is so powerful that there is nothing he cannot do. But then, watch him switch to another theme, the goodness of God. Verse 7, they celebrate your abundant goodness. 
and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. David said, God, says God is worthy of our worship because he's too good to let anything bad happen to us. He works all things together for our good. God is great, and God is good. And then again, beginning in verse 11, he repeats that one-two punch. From, from verses 11 through verse 13, God is great. And then middle of verse 13, all the way down to verse 17, God is good. He's both great and he is good. Now, life doesn't always tell us that, but worship speaks that truth to our mind and to our heart. It strengthens our faith. It gives resilience to our joy. Harold Kushner was a rabbi who wrote a book on suffering entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And for him, it was not an intellectual exercise. It was, it was his attempt to understand why God would allow his own son to have a disease called progeria, which is basically rapid aging. His son never grew taller than three feet. He had no hair on his head or body. He looked like a little old man while he was still a child, and he died at the age of 14. How do you uh, reconcile that kind of suffering with faith in a loving God? Well, the way Rabbi Kushner did it was to take God's power out of the equation. He said in his book, forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good, I choose to believe in God's goodness. He said that the key to understanding suffering is to acknowledge that there are some things that God does not control. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. That's what suffering tells us. But the Word of God tells us that God is both great and good. He is both loving and powerful. He is both compassionate and sovereign. And worship is how we remind ourselves of that truth. When the fog of suffering rolls in. And then there's one more truth about worship that I discovered in this psalm, and maybe the reason that I saw it is because I needed to see it. Worship encourages us to pray boldly. That truth that God is both great and good gives us the faith we need to petition God aggressively. In fact, after David leads us through those two rounds of praising God for his greatness and his goodness, he invites us to pour our hearts out to God. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. One version says, you are near to everyone whose prayers are sincere. Wow, this great God, this God of all power, this God who is not only great but also good, full of compassion, full of love, full of grace. He's close to us when we pray. We don't have to wonder if our prayers will make it all the way to heaven because God has come down here. He's listening to our whispers, to our shouts, and even to our groans that are too deep for words. In verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him, those who revere him, those who stand in awe of him. He hears their cry and saves them. He's eager to give us the desire of our hearts. 
It's one thing to start with prayer by saying, God, I need you. And just to throw it out there. This is what I want. But to begin with praise, to fill our mind, to control our tongue with the truth that God is both great and good, and to tell that to our heart until our heart agrees, and then to pour out our heart to God. Man, how powerful are those prayers. Maybe you came to church today not with gratitude that was like too carbonated to contain, but with a burden that was too heavy to bear. A bleak diagnosis. A lost child. An unbreakable habit. A financial crisis. An irreparable relationship. An unbeatable addiction. Unrelenting pain. Unshakable oppression. Overwhelming grief. David would say to you, cry out to God. Say to him, I know you are great. I believe that you are good. You can do anything. You care about what I need. You love me, and you love the one I'm interceding for. Oh, God, that I worship with all of my heart. Be near me now. Hear my cry. Save me. Rescue the one I love. See, it's worship that gives us the boldness to pray like that, expecting a yes, and even trusting a no. I'm telling you, worship changes us. And it changes all of those who are influenced by us. In Love Does, Bob Goff writes about one last vacation that Don Valencia planned with his family. The Goffs had a family lodge in British Columbia, and Don asked Bob if his family could come up and stay with him for a few days. Of course, Bob said, and plans were made. But then right before the trip, Don took a turn for the worse. He was admitted to the hospital He couldn't go, but he begged his family to go without him and to come back and tell him everything they experienced so that he could enjoy it vicariously. And they didn't want to do it, but he insisted, and so they finally agreed. And then, after the Valencias arrived at camp, Bob called Don, and in the course of their conversation, they hatched a plan to spring Don from the hospital and to sneak him up to the lodge. Before they realized how absurd the idea was, they had worked out all the details. And soon, Don was in a seaplane with all his medical paraphernalia. And when Bob brought Don's wife and kids down to the dock, purportedly to help carry groceries that a seaplane was going to deliver, and the plane arrived, and Don climbed out, well, you can imagine the scene. Bob Goff said, we made our way up to the lodge and uh, Don laid down on the large couch in the living room. The boys sat at his feet and Heather laid by his side. Our family disappeared into the kitchen but could hear them talking softly, then laughing, then talking softly again. Heather and Don held hands and looked into each other's eyes a lot. And without getting up from the couch, they slow danced on the edge of heaven together. Don gave me the gift of a last meaningful conversation, too. I had come to love this man. When the family had left, I laid down on the couch and put my head on his chest. 
We talked about heaven and eternity and how we would all be back together at some point. And we talked about how good God is all the time, not just some of the time. That's the power of a life in which worship has become a habit. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to have that kind of character living in this broken world, knowing that there is pain and even disillusionment in our future. We want to, we want to be able to go through those times with this kind of faith, with this kind of joy, continuing to praise you. Please, Holy Spirit, work in our lives. Use this psalm in our lives to change the way that we see you, to change the way that we talk about you. And may it carry us through even the most difficult times, and may it influence those we love to worship you too. In Jesus' name, amen.